Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Schnell Fuseli is the founder and CEO of Scion Digital. Previously, Schnell was the CEO and co-founder of Cloud Lending, which was acquired for $105 million in 2018. We talked about why he started Scion Digital, what the company is trying to accomplish, and we spent a decent amount of time discussing India, what the implications of the crypto policies are in India, what the growth plans of the Indian market is, and how India is set to make a major impact in the world in the coming decade. So I deeply enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot from Schnell, and I hope you do as well. Today's show is sponsored by Otter Labs at HireOtter.com. You can check out a great resource if you are hiring developers for your startup. Whether you are hiring front-end, back-end, full-stack, design, Otter Labs is a great resource. Located in South America, it is a great option for teams that are remote, based in the U.S., and want to hire people on the same time zone. So for more details, check out HireOtter.com. And I hope you enjoy the show with Chanel Fuseli. All right, my man, Schnell Fuseli. I believe I have the correct pronunciation. Uh, I'm excited to, to chat with you. Uh, awesome company, uh, great background. I, I'd love to hear your personal story, maybe specifically starting with the inspiration for your current company. What were you doing at the time when you started the business and uh, what was the initial, initial inspiration into the business? Thanks, Mike, for having me on the show. And uh, uh, I think I have to probably go back a few years before I start talking about, you know, what made me start Scion. Uh, well, just to give you a quick background, I grew up in India, in the central part of India. And then it was a bit of a poverty-ridden place. So while growing up in my formative years, I kind of knew, you know, having access to financial services is pretty much like a basic human right. If you don't have it, you don't get a degree, you don't get a mortgage. So pretty much all options that you have as a as an individual just to grow in this world, just gone away. Uh, that understanding at that time was really around, okay, maybe just that region is uh, poor and maybe that's what it is. But then throughout my, <clears throat> I guess, uh, younger years, I, I traveled to Mumbai, one of the major cities in India. I got my undergraduate degree in computer science. Then eventually I came to the U.S., uh, went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And I think during those travels, it was quite uh, mind-boggling to me 
the the disparity that I saw and what I saw in my formative years while growing up, regardless of where you are in the world, it's the same. Meaning, I mean, half of probably 40% of world's population today probably, you know, don't have access to formal banking services for a variety of reasons, right? And when you think about that that way, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's heartening. I think, uh, I think, uh, we have uh, kept bar very low in my opinion. And I think we haven't done, uh, a good job of just bringing more and more people in the gamut of financial inclusion. So that sort of stayed with me in during my formative year, during my travel. And there are a bunch of other experiences that sort of I can just talk about a little bit, which even exacerbated, you know, uh, what I was experiencing. Um, uh, I think after I graduated, I went to get a credit card uh, with PNC Bank in Pittsburgh. I actually had an offer from Oracle. Uh, that was my first job out of school. Uh, and I got a, it was a decent salary job. And I had an offer. I was going to go there. I, I, I went to PNC Bank to get a credit card for a for a thousand bucks and they, they declined. And it was sort of, uh, it was a unique experience. I thought, I mean, if I were them, I, I would bet on me. Like I would give me a thousand bucks of credit card. So I thought there was, must be something wrong with PNC bank. I walked into JPM, they declined. I walked into bank of America and they said the same thing. And I go, huh, this is interesting. Um, then figured out that the, the traditional model of underwriting people, which is FICO based, uh, and I was a thin credit file. I, I, you know, I came from India. I did not really have credit history, and I was p- pretty much designed to keep it, you know, keep me out of the loop of, you know, the formal financial services. But I felt very strongly about it. Uh, and then uh, I took up a job with Oracle. I stayed there for three years, learned the art of building enterprise software. Uh, but I made the, you know, doing my bit in bringing more people. Um, in the in the sort of the sphere of financial inclusion, sort of a personal mission, uh, started a company in 2013 called Cloud Lending, and uh, pretty much it was an enterprise software company uh, focused on using alternative forms of data to underwrite borrowers. So we worked with uh, small business lenders, we worked with progressive consumer lenders, and we started using or, or at least giving them tools to look beyond FICO. So we were, uh, I remember one of the earlier customers was a small business lender. They started using uh, Yelp review data to underwrite uh, borrowers, which was kind of good as opposed to just using FICO of the owner, right? So uh, through that journey, I mean, eventually we uh, we exited the business. We sold that business to a company based out of Austin called Q2. And, and during all of this time, uh, I felt like, uh, I was actually closely watching microfinance as well. Uh, microfinance institution, it, if you remember, it came out and said that, hey, this is going to really remove sort of world hunger and poverty from the world. I think it was an interesting experience, but uh, it did not deliver on its promises. Uh, that's just my personal opinion. And, and over the last three or four years, when you think about blockchain as a technology and it's its capabilities to build transparent financial systems, and more importantly, its capabilities to actually bring the underserved and unserved market globally, not just US, but globally, 
and provide them access to formal banking services, uh, lending, you know, savings account, checkings account, all in the blockchain. I, I think uh, this is probably this is probably the closest answer I have gotten to saying a, a technology enabled uh, a bit of a revolution, if you will, that will sort of solve this problem. So when when you when you mash my personal ambitions of you know the personal values around financial inclusion with something of a technology as cool as blockchain which has the promise of you know changing things around uh, i i was just super excited about that and we started scion uh, primarily to bring to simplify the world of crypto and blockchain because that technology is amazing but understanding that technology is um it, it's kind of not easy for non crypto savvy people so we are on the mission to actually simplify that layer but through that we want to accelerate our mission of you know making financial services more inclusive and competitive so that's like a a, a long uh, answer to your question as to where we landed how we landed and we can talk more about scion but that's a little bit of background yeah thank you uh i'd love to learn a little bit more about your experience in india and and maybe more broadly about india today when you moved to the us to go to carnegie mellon i think that was around 2007 so 14 yeah. years ago 15 years ago uh i'm sure the world was different both in the us and in india uh and crypto certainly wasn't a thing was the process of moving here simple and easy? What, did it, does it require either back then or today uh, a, a certain amount of just financial capability, just money you'd have to pay? Or is there just a student visa you get from applying to Carnegie Mellon and getting in? Have you noticed that change over the years? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we haven't talked a lot about that recently, but now that you're talking, you know, bringing that up, it it, it isn't. Uh, at, at, at that time, it wasn't easy. Um, I like—I mean, we didn't really have the financial means to go to an expensive school like uh, Carnegie Mellon. I always uh, put myself through public uh, educational system in India. Uh, I actually almost, I should proudly say, I never paid anything uh, until Carnegie Mellon, to, including my undergraduate degrees that uh, basically had scholarships uh, paying for it. Um, at, at CMU, however... Uh, I was actually behind my tuition payments, uh, believe it or not. So I, I defaulted uh, my first semester and CME was kind enough to give me a grace period of another 45 days to go, you know, uh, get the tuition. I think it was like 20,000 USD or something, a lot of money uh, for, for me. And my brother, my elder brother who was in India, was trying to get me an education loan from, he's just going from bank A to bank B to bank C, getting me a loan. And it's funny because they obviously don't recognize, let's say, the quote-unquote, the potential of candidate they're betting money on. Uh, however, um, those those banks would ask for, hey, if you have uh, a real estate that's worth 40,000 USD, of course, we're going to give you 20,000 worth of loan. And when, and when you think about that, at that time, I was like, huh, banks are basically designed to give money who don't need it. So I will never get a loan from a bank because I don't have the collateral. If I had the collateral, I wouldn't be coming to you and asking for money. Uh, if I would probably be better off uh, not taking that loan. And the loan was like 18% interest rate. That was like the student loan we we're talking about. Uh, 
So had to go through that. I defaulted uh, on my tuition. Uh, then I managed to get some friends to, you know, uh, pull some money in. Uh, I, I cut a deal with CMU. It's like, hey, I'm going to pay you half. And I, I think I started negotiating with an institution on my tuition, which was, that was like a big life lesson for me that you could actually negotiate your, not way out, but at least you you could, that was my first negotiation sort of a, a learning experience where I basically talking to CMU saying, hey, I can only pay half of the tuition, but you know, give me another 45 days, I'm going to get the rest of it. Eventually, um, I got, you know, some scholarships and other some personal loans from friends and family. I managed to pay it off uh, after I got the job. But anyway, that was like the, uh, and I don't think to your question, if has it changed much? I don't think it has changed. Uh, I think uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't think the state of uh, this process of funding your international education has changed much. Uh, I think for folks who've been, who grew up in a, let's say tier one cities in India, I think that probably is uh, more affordable there because they probably have more options. But for majority of population uh, in India, outside of those tier one, tier two cities, it's, I think, kind of very hard. And was it a obviously desirable path to take to come to the U.S. at that time for higher education? Like, was that sort of what people wanted to do in India? And is that to some degree, that must be changing. Obviously, with COVID, people are not traveling as much for yeah. school. But at that time, was it was it viewed as sort of this is the place to go? Or were there many different options, even in, in, internally in India as well? Yeah, I think that landscape has changed uh, dramatically as to what options uh, Indians have or Indian students have today versus what we had at that time. But I personally was very uh, motivated to actually become an entrepreneur from a very young days, candidly. And uh, so I wanted to learn the art of running business. And now I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by Tata's. And uh, so that's like one of the big uh, institutions in India. Uh, Tata is probably 100 billion plus revenue type of an organization, probably the biggest in India. Uh, so I, I wanted to learn the art of uh, how to start a business, run a business. And I thought the best place to do that would be to go and get a business degree. So I, I go through this competitive exams and you may have heard about uh, India's competitive exams. They are super competitive. Uh, and you what is it like? What do you do? What do you, why, what makes it super competitive? What's the experience like in the inside? So I think uh, for the top five business schools in India, they are called as IIMs, Indian Institute of Management. Um, you have to be in the 99.5 percentile uh, you have to perform at that percentile to actually even get an interview call from them. So the the conversion that you're talking about, you have about uh, 500,000 graduates sitting uh, and competing for about, call it 300 seats. So, uh, so yeah, it's pretty competitive. Uh, but I was actually quite uh, inspired and motivated to go to one of these schools and get a business degree to, and my, my whole goal was to, I want to really learn uh, art of running a business or starting a business. So I get lucky. I land in this co college or the business school called Indian Institute of Management, Calcutta, IMC, which is like the third best institution in India. And I, I spent the first month, which 
I kind of understand very like this is 2006 we're talking about uh, and I think they weren't I mean they weren't teaching how to like start a business or I think on day one I, I remember people talking about after two years how they will get jobs with McKinsey and Barclays and JPM on their on their trading desk and how they will make a lot of money and I was like I didn't sign up for this I, I actually came here to actually uh, learn how to build a business or start a business and network perhaps and I think people were really inclined towards getting these fat paychecks even from day one and that's that was like the uh, a moment for me and I think where I come from and where I grew up I just didn't really have the baggage to say that yeah it's okay to because I left after two months I dropped out and which was like a very bizarre thing to do in that institution because that doesn't really happen in India where you go to an IIM it's like going to MIT and after two months saying that you, you just call your dad and say that, hey I'm not continuing I'm gonna go and maybe that happens more often here in the US but it wasn't the case in India so anyway long story short I, I quit after two months uh, of just doing accounting classes and such which was all good but I didn't feel like I, I need to spend two years of my life when I knew that I'm not going to learn the art of, you know, building a business. So what I did was kind of, uh, I think I find it interesting because it really helped me. I, I, I flew back to Bangalore, city of Bangalore, and I, I joined a nonprofit. Uh, I joined, joined a nonprofit as a, as a teacher. And I, and I taught, there are a bunch of folks who are coming from tier two, tier three cities. Uh, in this nonprofit, and the nonprofit is all about uh, personal development, so that they could get jobs, uh, even though they had the technical skills, but they weren't quite, you know, uh, presentable, or they couldn't really crack the interview. So that was a very unique nonprofit. But I, I, I taught there for eight months. They gave me food and shelter and some money, uh, and then I, I had to learn uh, how to run a business. And I could have started something, but I thought US would be an amazing place because. Most businesses get built here, so I have to go to U.S. somehow. Then I think I landed in Carnegie Mellon, uh, and I think the primary objective was to come to the States, uh, build network, and eventually find a way to build business, run company. That was like the goal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I felt that was very empowering. Uh, but yeah, CME was the conduit, uh, and it was amazing. I actually made a lot of good friends. Uh, my uh, my flatmate, my buddy, his name is Darpin Saini. He and I started the uh, first company, Cloud Lending, uh, which we eventually sold for you know uh, hundred plus million dollars. So, uh, which was a decent outcome. But uh, long story short, yeah. I think US is an amazing place for uh, you know folks to be entrepreneurial. And coming back to India, I think India's uh, ecosystem has changed dramatically over the last fifteen years. I think the same institutions I'm talking about, I think they are now very pro entrepreneurs. I think there are lots of amazing businesses been built uh, in those institutions too. So, mm. um, but at that yeah. time, years ago, it wasn't the case. Yeah, it seems like today is a different world in India in particular for entrepreneurs. The, the number of companies that are being funded uh, in India seems to be skyrocketing. I mean, the population just is is so high potential both in terms of the the basic, I would call it like intellectual capacity or intellectual potential of, of people is there. And then the sheer numbers. I mean, there's, if you look at a, 
a graph. There's a great graph I can include in the show notes, but it shows the three-dimensional representation of the population across the geography and throughout the world. And it'll show the U.S. and you see these, you know, little spikes for different cities. And then, you know, New York is a pretty big spike, Miami, Seattle. And then you go to Europe and there's spikes all across. And then India is just it's like a mountain of people. There's, it's hard for people that have never been to India, myself included, to really get a grip of how dense and how vast the population is there. Same in, in cities throughout China. So I think those two economies in particular just seem, you know, once the stars align or more specifically, once the infrastructural layers are, are foundationally stable, you know, there's a secure justice system, executive branch, uh, governmental branches are in power, and the institutions are reliable. Like, the population just seems like it's going to be able to explode uh, economically. Uh, have you been in close touch with people in India today? Are you up on what what's happening over there? Yeah, no, uh, I am. And I actually actively invest in a bunch of... Uh companies just primarily focusing on India. India is a, uh, you think about, to your point, if you just put a circle over India and China, that's probably one third of the entire world's population, right? Yeah. So it's extremely dense. Uh, many times what happens, especially sitting outside, you look at uh, a country like India and you think, oh, that's a huge market, right? With 1.3 billion people or whatever. Uh, but I think, Doing business in India, and if you are the Silicon Valley type entrepreneur who thinks about TAM and scalability and things like that, actually, there are a limited number of businesses that you can start because the population with disposable income is, is still pretty small. Mm-hmm. And when you start thinking like, like, like one, one measure is how many people in India hold a credit card? Let's just say that. Um, in the U.S., I, I don't know, I'm just getting a guess, maybe, you know, 60% of the population may have a credit card. In India, out of 1.3 billion people, I think about 70 million people only have a credit card, right? Um, uh, you know, what, why that is important is because I think that that's the kind of the population that you may want to target if you are trying to build like a high-flying startup. Right. So today, uh, it's basically 100 million uh, population type of a market opportunity for you if you're building a bi- direct-to-consumer business, right? I think by 2030, however, if you look at the per capita income uh, and the growth, uh, and, and and I think by 2030, that number should go up to 400 million people. So quite, uh, so the 400 million people, I think they will likely be third largest economy by 2030. That's when things will start to become really, really interesting. So I personally focus on, I mean, uh, science focus. I think India is one of the markets that we will eventually go after. Uh, maybe not today. Uh, but if you have that type of a time horizon, like 10 years, you will see that the actual um, opportunity pretty much quadruple from where it is today. And I think that billion people number makes more sense when you have that lens around how many people can actually spend on your stuff. It's a really good point because you can't sell software if you don't have a credit card. It's very difficult to collect payments if people don't have money to pay. And the deception of 1.3 billion is, uh, it's alluring. And I, and I think 
typically I find that the resistance to friends of mine who are scaling companies internationally is they're thinking, okay, time zone, it's on another part of the world. It's another language. It's difficult to integrate into the payment system. And then disposable income may not be there. So, and also the, the culture is different. The, the way that, uh, there was one example I saw recently with how food is delivered. So it was uh, these uh, these runs that guys would make. So there's a company that was providing a uh, a delivery service for food, but they wouldn't deliver food. They would pick up the food from the house. So like guys would go to work, then the food delivery guy would come to the house where yes. the wife would make food and then deliver it to work. And the wife would often make food for multiple people. And then so she would be able to earn income in that way and then deliver it to people at work, which is just, I think about that here logistically. And I don't think that, that there, there would be enough of people who would do that. You know, it's not part of the culture. I think there's probably many of those examples just from how people are driving, the traffic, the types of cars, the banking, the infrastructure, the food, the sleep patterns, behavioral patterns, the how many people are living in a household, how close they are to each other. It's it's quite a bit different on many levels. Um, a country that I'm really excited to go to today. What would you say on India for a minute? What would you say is the thing that either holds them back from economic development at a rapid scale, or it may be the same answer, is the thing that will catalyze them forward. You know, banking system, judicial system, is there something that's kind of an obvious problem? Yeah, I think uh, um, it's both uh, opportunities as well as challenges, I think. I think the policies have to do um, a fair amount more just make that country a much easier place to do business. Even getting a bank account, it's painful. Uh, it takes time. We are actually trying to set up a subsidiary in India because we have a bunch of developers there. And that whole process should will take, meaning setting up an entity, getting three, um, a bank account, and, and all of that will likely take three weeks, which, which is kind of uh, obnoxious, candidly, and it's painful. I mean, why should this process take three weeks? And this is after uh, the current government's efforts of making it easier for businesses to do. So previously, it must be, I don't know, six weeks. Uh, who knows? So I think policies have to be a bit more um, uh, entrepreneur friendly, I think business friendly. Uh, and then secondly, the as the, com- the country has a pretty young infrastructure, so the roads are being built. And, and I think China has done a phenomenal job. I think one of the reasons why China has been so successful is the infrastructure they've managed to put together in a short span of time. So the supply chain became easier. Uh, transparent, you know, transparency became like a thing. In India, a lot of things are just opaque. And the infrastructure, both, uh, not just I'm talking about physical roads and such, but telecom infrastructure, it's like you want to call, it just keeps dropping. Uh, so I think they have on the on the policy and the infrastructure and government has to come to the table and solve those problems. People are extremely. Um, I think there are lots and lots of entrepreneurs now uh, who are trying to do or trying to solve problems. Great motivation. Uh, entrepreneur spirit is high, like it's at a peak right now. Uh, there's a lot of money flowing in. The market opportunity is there. So I think if if both of them sort of come together and it's easier said than done, um, yeah, 
there's no reason why that country can't be very very successful uh, i think the ingredients are there it's a matter of time but uh, few few stars need to align yeah it just yeah. happen automatically and china is a great great case study man that that country is i mean <laughs> they were what they were and what they are it's incredible well it's uh it's very they're very successful from an infrastructural development and economic viewpoint i think there's a trade off there for that that they make you know obviously with the communist party having just a absolute dominating control and power over the the market so th- i think th- i think that that price hasn't been quite uh cashed in yet you know citizens you know like it's a different world there i mean <laughs> i think more so than pr- nearly anywhere else in the world uh with the exception of a few countries the power that the government has in terms of taking people out who disagree with them uh you know making unilateral decisions on the direction of the economy it's it's wild it's uh it's a very i think when you centralize power like that you have the ability to move incredibly quickly make decisions and then build a hospital in 5 days but if you make the wrong decisions you also can quickly go down a bad road which yeah. you know it's good that we have a diversity of strategies throughout the world like different countries take different approaches which is i think a really healthy thing probably a, a naturally evolving thing but it is interesting to see the comparison yeah at the same time and in, in india is a democracy and i think uh, uh to your point uh take, making decisions uh it just takes time and that's mm-hmm. why it has taken time and i think if if they believe if the country india believes that they will be third largest economy in 2030 i mean they'll probably take another 5 years to get there because it just takes time to make those decisions so yeah in hindsight 5 years not that bad crypto though they don't seem to be making great i don't know what what are your what are your thoughts on the direction of of crypto in india being 1.6 billion people crypto and only 70 million have a bank account or a credit card it seems like crypto would be a phenomenally beneficial technology for the the billion plus people there yet the the government seems to be uh discouraging it from a policy standpoint actually um uh there was a news couple of days ago uh there was a budget session um the finance minister talked about that in india and uh they made um crypto pretty much legal like they they said that hey we're going to uh tax it 30% tax uh on your capital gains uh, which is basically uh it's it's yeah it's legalized and then even payments are acceptable so since that news and this just happened a couple of days ago you may not have uh, uh you know uh watched it or something but i you know i i have a lot of friends there they talk about it i think you will see some insane like exponential growth in it it already was happening the crypto mm. uh, adoption was there but now it will be at a different level um i was speaking with a friend of mine who uh, who i grew up with he never left this tiny little place uh like ever he he's been there for last 38 years right and i was chatting with him this weekend and he's talking to me about cosmos and he's talking to me about phantom and whether he should buy that coin it's uh for me even to fa- i'm just it's unfathomable that this guy is talking to me about digital currencies 
and ability to buy, you know, Phantom and can I stake it? And it is, I mean, yeah. uh, you can see it in my face. I, I, even I, now I can't believe it. So I think it's happening to that level where it has actually percolated in really, really rural uh, corners of India. And I think if, if CBDC becomes real, uh, and this is an interesting topic and it's very close to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if India launches, uh, let's say, call it the CBDC, the central bank digital currency. And if they don't use the, uh, the existing banks as the distribution mechanism, and then they allow anybody to directly open up, let's say, a, ch- in a checking account with central bank, RBI, the Reserve Bank of India, I mean, I, I don't think that will happen. That's just maybe I'm, uh, I'm dreaming. But if that happens, what that would mean for normal people who are being not part of the formal financial services is they'll start building their credit history. They'll start having like an account with a government entity. Eventually, they may even get access to loans and all, all the things that they've been not given through the, I, I refer to banking system as distribution for government. Uh, and it's the same in the U.S. also. When the U.S. comes with the Fed coin, most likely they will distribute through banking system. Same thing that did with triple P loans uh, during the COVID time. They could have said that, hey, uh, we will write you a check, apply on our website, uh, and Fed will wire you money on your... But no, they wanted to go through the existing uh, distribution. And there's a reason why they want to do that because that's how they get transparency. That's how they generate revenue. It's the establishment, right? So that's a bit of maybe a wishful thinking that if uh, retail CBDC becomes like a real thing in India where end user can open up accounts directly with a uh, central bank, that would be a start of, you know, uh, something very, very interesting. Yeah. Wow. The, the, the implications of people in rural areas and, and just by rural areas, really everyone in the world once you have access to the internet, then you can dive into crypto. You can become an economic player, participator in the world economy, just as anyone could in a major city. When people are remote, companies are remote, it, it really doesn't matter where you are. That'll take a while. You know, it'll take a while for people to realize that that is a, a, a career pathway to take and then to really invest in it. But already the bottlenecking around software developers around the world, I think is the word's getting out very, very quickly. You know, when people are making $50 an hour and they're talking to their friend who, you know, they grew up with and they're working at a restaurant making, you know, one fifth of that in whatever town they're in, it's just, it, it, it's hard not to see how we all jump on this, this <laughs> bandwagon, so to speak. Uh, do you see any obvious implications or maybe non-obvious implications of uh, people, not even throughout India, but throughout the rest of the world coming online and coming into crypto um, pr- pr- in regards to, I would say, throwing out a few, certainly the project development of many different protocols will skyrocket as people learn to code and then people who know how to code start contributing more so in areas either part-time or full-time, there's probably going to be a large transfer of wealth that will continue to happen from institutional, probably Western countries like US, Europe, people who are managing large funds. And then the technology uh, explodes in crypto. And all of a sudden, your friend who purchased Cosmo or Phantom 
uh, he was early in on a project that somebody finds out years later about. So then he becomes wealthy. Are there other things that uh, you think about when you think of this? Is there maybe a potential dark side? Because a lot of this seems very light. It's like, well, all these people are going to you know, get great jobs and they're going to be happy and they're going to work in a world economy and we're all going to be rich. Like, is there is there another perspective that you'd say people should be aware of uh, on how, how, you know, what does that make sense on, on what potentially could yeah, we no. reflect on in a dark way? Yeah, and I'm actually, uh, I'm a, just generally speaking, I'm a paranoid entrepreneur. <laughs> I just think about all the things that will go wrong and I just focus my energy there. When I, when I think about the world of crypto and the adoption and all of that, I think right now we have about 100 uh, million people having some sort of a crypto wallet or crypto account or crypto uh, something. I think there's going to be an exponential rise in Ponzi schemes and fraudulent um, uh, ways to basically loot uh, people. I mean, this just happens. The the financial literacy aspect of uh, this planet Earth. I mean, if I mean, this is it's it's really low. I mean, it, even among the educated, the fact that we don't have a subject during our uh, curriculum called money, when we know that the entire world runs on it. We should be talking about money yeah. when you are like four years old, in my opinion, right? Uh, and I think we we don't have that course uh, until you feel like I need to learn that and maybe I'll get a degree in finance, right? So the financial literacy, even among the learned ones uh, and among the people who don't have formal education, they are so uh, trend-focused, Mm. Uh, this guy would be a really good example. I'm sure he's talking about Phantom and um, Cosmo, but he doesn't have any basis. Like he doesn't know the fundamentals. He, he's he's buying because I'm sure his friends, his family are also in it. Similarly, they will also buy a, lots of money. And by the way, they'll probably borrow money to do this. Uh, they'll probably mortgage their house to do this because they see that if they have like a one good year, like even six good months of returns, you just as a as a as a human being, you just don't see the dark side. You're not paranoid because all you see is oh, I I made like two x of my money. Oh, then you start thinking about oh, if I had so much more, I could have made so much more. I think there's going to be just an incredible rise uh, in Ponzi schemes and and fraud schemes. Now, here's the point. And I think SEC getting involved uh, in countries, obviously in the US, I'm sure in all the other developed nations, you have these agencies who are protecting uh, investor rights. And I think that's an amazing news. I think emerging economies are going to struggle because they may try to regulate, they may try to do this and that, uh, but people are, are going to, they, they, they don't, they don't, comply as easily because that's their way of living, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there is a rule or you have to wear a mask when you're going to a restaurant. I mean, in emerging economy, in Nigeria, you think everybody's following that? No. Uh, yeah. it, it, so so I think there's going to be just a rampant, uh, yeah. fraudulent Ponzi schemes out there and people, a lot of them are going to lose a lot of money and um, it all, all, almost always hurt the, the, the lowest on the Strata. Yeah, it's a good point, I think, to highlight 
the investment strategies that are pervasive across all investment opportunities, whether it's stocks, equities domestically in the U.S. or crypto, or it doesn't matter. There's these there's these fundamental human psychological uh, attributes that play into it, where you have a hype cycle where things get really exciting. Everyone's we're in one right now with NFTs. Everyone loves NFTs. Every company's launching an NFT. If you don't love NFTs, you're you know an old old guy or you're you're in an older generation, and it's like get on board or else you're lame. And yeah. that kind of uh, that kind of camaraderie that is like, oh, this is great. Yeah, it's great, right? Yeah, it's great. Everyone's looking at each other. Yeah, yeah, NFTs are great. Digital art, JPEGs, all that. Let's buy them, buy them, buy them. And then it kind of stalls out. It's like it, you run out of gas on that. And then the whole thing kind of implodes and it sinks down. It becomes a little depressed. And then we recalibrate and say, well, okay, what are, the, and then conversations start shifting to what are the fundamental economics? What's the actual value produced here? And then people become critical thinkers. Uh, in that cycle, it seems so predictable in, in some ways, having gone through it a number of times now in, in for me personally in crypto, where when you see things quickly grow without any actual news, just people are talking about it, they're talking about it. I I look at that and think it is it is going to it's going to regress in some way. If things rise too quickly, uh, it just, it seems like that's the pattern more often than not. And, and likewise, when things fall very quickly, it seems like that is often a emotional and not a practical real world uh, price adjustment mechanism going on. So th that, that that pattern is is kind of, in some ways, you kind of have to go through it. You have to get burned a few times. And even when you do, you know, I'm sure you've experienced that to uh, then in hindsight, be able to make the good decision as to like, okay, should I sell now? It's, it's, it's uh, I don't know, it might just be impossible. It, it might just be like predicting the future. Um, but yeah, I, your point is right. I would love to shift a little bit to uh, both what you're doing now and your last business. Your last business, uh, you you ran for about, I think, six years um, mm -hmm. and you sold it for a couple hundred million. So awesome return in your time. Um, what was what did that business do? Cloud Lending Solutions. H how did you guys grow so quickly? What did it do and how did you grow so quickly? So uh, we, um, so it was a fintech business and uh, we, um, so it started in 2013, um, and during that time, if you recall, a uh, uh, lot of businesses, they, so a lot of banks, they weren't lending to uh, small businesses and consumers. They were very, very gun-shy. This is after the 2008, and their credit policies are very, very strict. So a lot of fintech lenders started to come on um, or, or surface, Ondex, Cabbage, Mm -hmm. uh, now probably household names at that time were very young businesses, Lending Club, uh, Prosper. And they weren't going to go and buy the bank technology because banks typically use the Pfizer, the FIS, really monolithic legacy platforms. And they would cost them like millions of dollars to implement. So we wanted to ride that wave a little bit. Um, so we built a lighter version of that on the cloud. That's why the name cloud lending. Um, and it helped, it enabled lenders to manage their loan portfolio. 
right from originating any type of loan. And that could be small business loan, consumer loan, commercial loan, even leases for that matter, uh, to underwrite them on our platform and even back office servicing. And if uh, they become delinquent, the collections and all of that. So the entire, just one system as opposed to five, six point solutions. And we built it uh, specifically by keeping fintechs in mind because they were, uh, they, they wanted APIs. Uh, no bank has gone to, let's say, Pfizer and FIS and asked for APIs, but FinTech wanted APIs. So we built it API first and we built it configurable and things like that. So it was very uh, new age uh, spin of a very legacy product. Mm. Now, it's kind of boring to build loan uh, origination and servicing system. Uh, but when you think about it, an institution, a financial institutions make money just by lending. That's how they make money. So this becomes very, very critical for our customers. So it was like, a, uh, it was their customer record system. So we were the, many times we were the first vendor who would get paid uh, because if we uh, stop working, their business would sort of shut off, right? So we were the, uh, and I, I won't say that we orchestrated that, uh, that we wanted to be the most mission critical system for our customers. But it happened that way. I just we just got lucky. But we realized very quickly that, huh, this is a mission critical system for our customers. So then we we started to have, uh, or at least we had the pricing power, right? Because we knew that how much more money uh, cu customers were making. I'll give you an example. There's a company called uh, Opfi that went public last year. They were one of the early adopters uh, in 2013, 14. And they grew their business. Uh, they are a billion-dollar market cap company, and they probably did a few billion dollars on our platform. But we were their backbone uh, all, all these six years, seven years, right? So that's the kind of an example. So we were mission critical, and, and we, we could really uh, have the pricing power. And our, our, our contracts were five years long, three years long, five years long. Uh, and we learned a lot from that business. But it was like a enterprise SaaS business. Uh, I even, you know, we eventually grew it to, uh, 40 million annual recurring revenue, um, before I, I, I hung up my boots. So that was the business about. And, and if I were to kind of distill that down, would this be a appropriate summary to say that you recognize the business model of the traditional banks and you recognize the the shift from traditional to fintech to new competing lending services. And you said, Hey, instead of all these providers, all these fintech companies rebuilding the same stuff, let's just build it once and then allow the newer fintech companies to use this platform, this lending platform to build products on top of. So it's yes. like, it's like recreate, like you said, recreating the backbone uh, business model of what banks use in, in new API centric fintech focused way. Yeah, yeah, that's precisely it. So we uh, we we focused on things that fintechs will not see value in building, mm. right? They would want to be the owners of the customer experience. They would want to be owners of the underwriting model. Yeah, and we were like, hey, just focus on that because that's directly tied to your enterprise value. Why do you want to figure out uh, how to compute loan interest? That's boring. Right. Let us do that. Right. It's hard, but it's boring. Let us do that. Right, right. It's a good strategy. It's a, it's a fantastic strategy, which has been used many times to think about uh, business model opportunities where you see what's what's you see a trend. You see, OK, we're going from banks to fintech, maybe physical located 
banks in the middle of yeah. cities online, and that's happening in a big way. And and what's the what are the services that are being offered by these new companies that are duplicate? You know, it's not it's not the uniqueness of what they're offering, but it's like a foundational layer. So that would be accounting would be one of them. You know, they're going to do accounting in a different way. But you guys are. I think unique in that you were central to the business model. So if I'm picturing another trend in the world, say uh, healthcare going remote, right? We have telehealth businesses. There's a lot of telehealth businesses. And I, actually, I, I saw you're very interested and in, involved in healthcare. When you have a lot of telehealth businesses, well, the actual telehealth portion of the technology, the video software, the documentation, that may not be what a company is selling. They might be selling some specific type of doctors or a, yeah, uniqueness, but they just want to bolt on this capability. And so if you're providing tele, this is probably about six years ago, you know, I'd say that, that was the, the perfect time to start this kind of business. But, you know, today you could name off you know, multiple different trends and then identify that same way of thinking about it. Yeah. And I think uh, we have taken that learning of being in a wide space, which everybody would need, all the innovators would need, let's just say that. Um, and, and, and we're trying to apply the same theory in Scion Digital as well. So when you think about the world of crypto, um, it's growing so rapidly and there are lots of infrastructure companies also out there, like bunch of custodians, and a lot of compliance services, uh, tax services, uh, blockchain analysis services. And I think when you think about a non-crypto savvy business, if they have to embed any of this into their existing business workflows, they would be lost. Mm -hmm. So what we are doing right now is we are basically building an orchestration layer that connects with all the leading custodians and leading tax providers, leading compliance providers. And then we will just orchestrate a solution and that could get embedded into existing uh, business workflow. As an example, um, a traditional lender, let's say a lender uh, who wants to now uh, accept Bitcoin as collateral. Uh, as a concept, that sounds great because it reduces their risk. They may even uh, use that custody Bitcoin to generate more yield. Uh, but when you think about actually executing it, you start asking questions that are, huh, how do we, how do we get started? Uh, where will, I mean, do we need licenses? Where will this, how will the Bitcoin move from uh, borrower's wallet into our custody? Uh, what happens if the market goes down? How do we issue a margin call? Uh, what happens if they don't pay? How do we liquidate it? Do we have a liquidity provider? So execution of that really involves a bunch of point solutions. And that's where we would come in. And we would basically provide an orchestration platform that will basically solve this problem for them so that they don't have to worry about, you know, uh, all that goes behind the scene, but they will only worry about uh, selling this new product to their customers. When you say orchestration platform, uh, I'm picturing a an orchestra where you have multiple different software companies that you're integrating with is that is that right or are you yeah. sort of building technology from the ground up and then selling it into companies to manage crypto transactions yeah absolutely uh, we are just integrating with a whole bunch of uh, crypto um, infrastructure companies or crypto solution companies um, because combination of those point solutions uh, and and we 
uh, candidly, we don't know how that orchestration platform we use. It will totally be dependent on the innovators' uh, mindset. And they could come up with ideas uh, that we haven't thought about, but they could use our orchestration platform to execute on it. I see, I see, I see. And just to wrap my mind around this, like how many different software vendors would you be integrating with on the back end? So we have identified um, about eight core buckets, uh, like custody is one, tax is another one, compliance is another one, uh, risk management is another one. Similarly, we have about eight or nine big buckets. And in each bucket, we have identified, we're calling it primary and secondary. So primary, we have identified around three, two to three each. And then secondary, there is, I mean, we will see how successful they become. And if they become successful, we will start integrating with them. The primary ones are already successful businesses. As an example, um, Elliptic uh, is a company that does on-chain analysis of uh, blockchain data. It's been used by hundreds of companies already, but most of their business, most of their users are crypto native businesses, not an established business. So we, we said that, Hey, for on-chain analysis, we have to integrate with Elliptic. And when we are selling our orchestration platform, our customers don't have to really think about Elliptic because it just comes across, comes with the platform. So is it, is it right to say that you're using Elliptic in this case as like uh, a backend uh, engine connected via API? So with the, would the customer even know that they're using Elliptic or? Yeah, if they ask the question, they would. If they don't. Right, uh, they wouldn't. They wouldn't even know. Oh, wow. That's interesting. It's kind of like a hyper API centric where you're at this middle layer that's using the power of all these protocols and companies out there uh, with the front end customer n- not even necessarily knowing the difference. Yeah. Yeah, middleware, I think, is the right uh, terminology to use. Yeah, we are a bit of a middleware that's integrating with all the essential uh, crypto services. And it relies on APIs from crypto services, right? The capability you would have as a middle layer is limited to, somewhat limited, because you could build on top of it, but it's limited to the API capabilities that these companies offer, right? Because you're effectively like taking the functionality that they built on the software level, and then you're just accessing that functionality through the APIs. Yeah. And and you just uh, uh, hit the nail on its head when you said, if there is something that they don't offer, we'll have to build it. So we are already seeing uh, some of those uh, elements. Like as an example, many of our customers are looking for policy management. Uh, as an example, they're like, hey, if somebody sends... Uh, uh, there's a limit of uh, five Bitcoin uh, per transaction, right? That's a policy. Mm. Now, how do you configure that? So you will configure that in the orchestration platform. I see. So now nobody is providing that. So we'll have to build that or policy management on top of it. You got it. It's interesting because it's very similar in a way to what you've done before. I, obviously, that's no coincidence, but that must have been part of the mindset that you yeah. went into this with, which was like, okay, let's identify a trend. Let's identify a, a core part of what the trend relies on for functionality. And then let's integrate to the providers out there uh, yeah. to make it happen. Uh, so yeah. today the company is uh, two, two years old, I think I, I have, and about 15 people. So relatively new, or is that? No. No, okay. Uh, actually, it's Sorry. just, uh, uh, no, no, it's just a four months old. We started in October of, 2021. So it's a four, it's four months old. We have about 20 employees. Um, How do you have 20 employees after four months? How is that possible? It's well, so many people. Uh, most of, yeah. I mean, uh, 
most people I have worked with in the past. Mm. Uh, so it's essentially, you know, we are doing it again. So a bunch of execs from cloud lending, a few people from Q2, a uh, few people from FIS. Um, they all just came together and we uh, ramped it up very, very quickly. That's awesome. And, and is the company self-funded? Do you, have you invested or... Fun. Yeah, uh, I'm personally invested. It's actually, we raised seed capital. Uh, we raised $12 million of uh, seed round uh, last month. So it's obviously for a seed round, it's it's quite a big round. Mm-hmm. So, but we, we did raise $12 million and we onboarded uh, very, very good VCs with a lot of you know great connection in blockchain and fintech in general. So Greycroft, uh, Greenweiser Capital, 645, uh, Kota Capital, uh, Ulu Ventures, uh, they are all uh, investors in the business. Mm. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, congrats on that. That's, I mean, four months in, 20 people, 12 million raised. That's uh, solid progress. Are there other players in the space that uh, either are direct or indirect and, and well-established, or is the space really in its complete infant, infancy? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's very early, um, but the custodians out there, meaning peop- other end- other infrastructure companies who got in early, now they are trying to figure out, huh, we've been serving crypto-native businesses. How, how do we go serve other non-crypto-native businesses, let's say banks or... So they are obviously going after the same uh, market that is our core customer. Our core customers are not crypto-native businesses. Actually, our core customers are people who don't understand crypto, right? So, so that's the overlap. So, um, uh, so in, in, in other words, we partner with a bunch of custodians, but now they are expanding um, their capabilities so that they are able to work with um, established businesses. Uh, I think the uniqueness would be, you know, uh, we are designing our platform from ground up on from day one specifically for that use case as opposed to growing into it. Mm. Uh, in other words, we are designing so that to make it integration ready, even with their legacy infrastructure, uh, which may not have been thought through with the, um, let's say, the existing players out there. So anyway, I think the yeah. prob- our biggest challenge right now is uh, being very focused. Uh, every time you speak with the organization, they have a crypto angle in mind. And, and, and going through that process, figuring out certain patterns and then focusing on one or two use cases is something that we are going through right now. Um, so we've identified lending as a very interesting vertical. Uh, we have identified cross-border payments as another interesting vertical, uh, because now people are just working from wherever, right? And, uh, uh and getting them paid, uh, through normal SWIFT cha- channels and all of that is very expensive and slow. And we think that blockchain can solve some of these problems. Totally agree. Yeah, it seems like the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you said it well, but you have a lot of expertise selling into traditional fintech companies. And then you, uh, you, you, you have a lot of different potential services you can offer them. So distilling that down to figure out what do these guys really want is slightly different than your last business. Whereas, you know, last business is like, okay, lending, bam, let's just nail that here. It's like, as you said, eight different verticals or eight different categories that people, that these customers could be into. So yeah, parsing that out is, um, sounds challenging, but also sounds fun. And it sounds like the right problem to solve. Um, 
Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm excited about, uh, hopefully, um, the, the team that we have is really about um, growing and having the biggest impact. Uh, so we, we'll see how this plays out, but we are, we are very humble and we'll listen to the market and then um, go accordingly. Yeah, I, I love the business because it's, it's the necessary underlying infrastructure that allows us as a society, really a global society, to shift from the old way to the new way, from the traditional banking system to the decentralized crypto blockchain system. And it, it's, uh, you know, one day when you sell this for hundreds of millions and no one's ever heard of it on the consumer side, and they're like, how did all these traditional fintech companies integrate with crypto? It's like, oh, you know, Scion, yeah. crushing it in the back end. What, what's the origin of this, the name Scion, C-I-O-N? Well, I actually just took coin, C-O-I-N, and I flipped I-N-O. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tricky. <laughs> and then I think I was on a call last week and uh, my head of sales, uh, his name is Jim Donatel, and, and he thought that actually I was being very thoughtful about the name. So he may have Googled it or whatever. And he, he, he was telling somebody else, and I think on the call, somebody else asked the question about, hey, what does Scion mean? And Jim says, oh, that's new beginnings. And I go, huh? Uh, I, I, but it's, it's funny because I didn't think about that. And he, he did some research. It, he, he, later on, I told him that, man, I wasn't being so thoughtful. I, I just flipped O and I in, in coin. So uh, I like that. Yeah. I like that a little synchronicity. And then, um, are you active on social? Do you uh, tweet or write publicly? No, uh, and I think uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, get on that. Let's just say that I've been uh, hibernating a little bit uh, last couple years, and yeah, not active on social. But uh, that's one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish this year. Awesome, awesome. Last question: I I love to hear. Are there people or articles or books or places or anything that comes to mind when you think of where you learned or where you continue to grow intellectually? Yeah. Um, a couple of things. One is I'm a big uh, fan of this business called Tata's, T-A-T-A. Uh, -T -A. Uh -huh. um, they build a massive business in a place like India. Uh, where fraud is so common, like you just cannot get around it. And they build an incredible brand and that brand is all about, you know, uh, just doing the right thing and being fair to the consumers and they've been incredible. So I, I'm a, I, I watch their move. Uh, and so I, that's a brand I follow and I'm inspired by. And then, on a, and then, uh, there's this individual, uh, Dr. Uh, Ambedkar. Uh, and not, not many people have heard of him, but he was the, uh, who was the person who wrote the constitution of India. And he was the first person who said, uh, who tried to bring, you know, equality or, or, or uh, India's constitution is amazing. It talks about, uh, not discriminating at all, being fair to everybody. It is just the most progressive literature there is. And, and he was very outspoken about all the, you know, all the shit that goes on in a country like India. Uh, he wasn't being, you know, loved for it. Mm. Uh, he was very, very hated for it. But when you, I mean, he just was, uh, he, he, the impact that he has had on the number of people, I don't, it's unmatched. Mm. 
I don't think there's any other figure out there uh, who has had a similar impact. I mean, if you start reading about him, you will know. Uh, he, he was basically a representative of about 750 or maybe 850 million people uh, in India uh, when he was writing this constitution because he had that lens that, okay, we have to take care of these people. So I think uh, a big credit goes to him mm. um, uh, as how India has come about in its democratic, you know, um, journey, wow. democracy, sorry, democracy journey. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Isn't it amazing that the, the impacts from people who write these foundational documents, constitutions, just, I mean, they are the most important thing in a society. They're the the holy grail. They're what binds people together on something that they can at least agree on in principle. I, I saw that as a side note, Tata, the company, uh, very big company, founded in 1868. Can you believe that? They're yeah. 130, 40, 50. They're old. <laughs> Been around for a long time. That's awesome. Well, maybe digital coin will, or uh, Scion Digital will be uh, around for 150 more. Uh, Mr. Fuzelli, thank you for jumping on today. I really enjoyed getting to know you and we wish you the best. Thank you so much, Mike. Right. Have a wonderful day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 